1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where for a second time this year, the world did not end, despite Harold Camping's predictions to the contrary. You can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, NW237CZ Hudsonville 1680 AM and 95.3 FM and streaming at the brand new and spiffy publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. Teen pop sensation Justin Bieber.
0: Harold hey, Camping fooled me once, fooled me again, <laughs> and I'm I'm done. I'm done with it. And Doctor Professor Luke Galen, we're at, we're here spiritually. That's the way that they do these things now.
2: <laughs> the world didn't end physically, but it just ended spiritually. I,
1: ha- I haven't actually seen what he said. What we're recording like two days after his predicted end of the world, and I haven't seen any statements from. I think end, it was but...
0: oh, and then he kind of <laughs> fell.
1: Yeah, he had another heart attack or whatever he did to cop out last time. On today's episode, help! Help! We're being repressed. Uh, just in case you were wondering, yes, there is still discrimination against atheists. We'll talk with Jennifer Bean, no relation, except through marriage, an upcoming lawsuit <laughs> involving the Center for Inquiry Michigan and religious, or in this case, non-religious discrimination. Also, the Foundation Beyond Belief gets denied the chance to give half a million dollars to fight cancer. But don't feel bad because there's a God thinks like you to make you feel superior. And then, of course, a counter-apologetics to make you feel like an outsider once again. And some polyatheism just for fun. Uh, But first, Richard Dawkins is not here. But not for lack of trying, right, Jeremy?
3: Yes. We actually had an opportunity or thought we were going to have an opportunity to interview Richard Dawkins. He came to Michigan and did several events here uh, in the mid and east parts of the state. Mm -hmm. And I dutifully followed him around with a microphone for about four days, having been promised to get my interview, and uh, it kept on getting postponed. And by the time he was shuttling off to the airport, the director of his foundation was like, well, can we do this by phone? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, emailed for my phone interview and... Didn't get that either, so we tried. Yeah. We tried. This should have been the Dawkins episode. We tried really hard for <laughs> you. This is not our first time trying to get Dawkins. He is no. just,
4: he's very yeah, but, busy
3: But last time, we, on tour. last time we had a good chance of getting Dawkins was my my fault. Right. I, I came down with the that flu. That was due to illness, yeah. I Tried to get Dave to grab the field recorder and go at the last minute, but you were yeah, booked I with was... like five or six different things. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, So, yeah, the elusive Dawkins escapes our (laughs) grasp again. Yeah, and, of course, our
1: show is not the only place he's not appearing. Um, He also won't be appearing on stage with our very favorite apologist... William Lane Craig.
3: Do you remember that bust ad campaign? There probably is no no God. Yeah, there probably is no God, so stop worrying and live your life. Now there's a campaign out that says there probably is no Dawkins.
0: So stop worrying and enjoy enjoy October 25th at some... Yeah, their
3: their particular uh, meeting.
0: The people putting on these these ads are are the unbelievable podcasts, Premier Uh, Christian Radio, and and craig has has kind of said, "Look, I'm not doing any of this. I'm just the guest speaker. This radio station is really pushing this angle of uh, they're actually going to set up an empty chair for this event
1: It's like a <laughs> seder, right right um, uh,
0: so if Dawkins it's shows not up Elijah. it's not elisha <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if Dawkins shows up, then they can do a debate, but uh he's presuming uh and also, Dawkins has an event going on that day. But they're going to set up this empty chair symbolizing his his absence. And uh, I don't know. Kind of a strange
3: move, I think. Yeah, I think it's kind of a cheap shot. Yeah, yeah.
1: it totally is. I mean, they're and, getting and publicity Craig, based on Craig someone himself. who's not yes.
3: there. Craig himself, he may not have initiated this. Right, but he's loving it. And yeah, Craig is. He's eating this up. On that same radio show or podcast. Yeah, it's called
0: Unbelievable with a question mark. So unbelievable.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Craig said it was pretty clear to him why... Dawkins wasn't going to engage him in debate because it would be just too embarrassing. Right. Which, actually, I'm not sure that I would disagree with that. <laughs> no, I think it he's... probably would have been, but of course, the insinuation is that they uh, don't have a, like, atheism the is an embarrassing right. standpoint. Yeah. Not that Richard Dawkins is a professional biologist, not a philosopher. Exactly. None. Well,
1: and beyond that is William Lane Craig is an expert debater. He's not the greatest apologist in the world maybe mm. but as far as from a technical debate standpoint he is very difficult to beat and uh, frankly i don't look down on anyone who chooses not to debate craig
0: because right i don't think he's obligated to do it i just think that the reasons he's been giving are getting increasingly more petty I agree. Now, the, the most recent one uh, accusing William Lane Craig of justifying the Canaanite genocide, of course, that's just disgusting uh, writing by William Lane Craig. But it kind of seems like, you know, he's, he's getting put on the spot, and then he's like, oh, well, you are an evil guy, so I don't have to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Which, which that that, that which, reason came about very recently. He's always right. had different reasons for not debating him.
1: It doesn't seem yeah. like, I mean, we have taken on Craig. Obviously, he hasn't been on the show, but we took on this very argument of Which is of invited. Uh, yes. <laughs> where he justifies genocide um, and says some really astonishingly stupid things.
0: I think those are the kind of statements that need to be argued against. I can't imagine the big Craig followers feeling that comfortable with with what Craig is saying. I mean anybody with any kind of moral conscience has got to be squirming when he says this stuff.
1: Yeah, and we got into it quite a bit during our summer genocide series. But Richard Dawkins quotes in an article um, some of Craig's most egregious statements. He says, Craig is not uh, just a figure of fun. He has a dark side. And that is putting it kindly. He quotes Craig saying, Moreover, if we believe, as I do, that God's grace is extended to those who die in infancy or small children, the death of these children was actually their salvation. We are wedded to an earthly, naturalistic perspective that we forget that those who die are happy to quit this earth for heaven's incomparable joy. Therefore, God does these children no wrong in taking their lives. And this is in reference to the Israelites being told to kill all of the Canaanites, including right. the, the women and children.
0: Yeah, which yeah. justifies literally anything. There's nothing that can Abortions be for
1: all. Yeah. Dawkins also quotes Craig as saying, So whom does God wrong in commanding the, the destruction of the Canaanites? Not the Canaanite adults who were corrupt and deserving of judgment. Not the children, for they inherit eternal life. So who is wronged? Ironically, I think the most difficult part of this whole debate is the apparent wrong done to the Israeli soldiers themselves. Wow. Can you imagine what it would be like to have to break into some house and kill a terrified woman and her children? (laughs) The brutalizing effect on these Israeli soldiers is disturbing.
3: All right. (laughs) So, you know what? I I
1: guess I can't
3: (laughs) – A very warped perspective that (laughs) sees the only wrong and genocide being done to the soldiers themselves. They're they're the real victims.
1: And what Dawkins says, and I I like this point at least, even if it is kind of a weak defense for I don't want to debate this guy, is – Uh, Why would you shake hands with a man who could write stuff like that? Right. Would you share a platform with him? I wouldn't and I won't. He says if any of his colleagues should end up debating Craig, um, that his advice to them would be to stand up, read aloud Craig's words as quoted above the passages I just read, then walk out and leave him talking not just to an empty chair, but one would hope to a rapidly emptying hall as
3: well. I really enjoyed his editorial here. Yeah, I did too. I I agree from the beginning that this is not his real reason for not debating Craig. Nevertheless, since Craig is so eager to capitalize on Richard Dawkins fame to promote his own agenda, I think this was a really fitting comeback. For a lot of people who are going to be reading The Guardian, this is going to be their very first exposure to Craig – True. And they're going to see what he's really about. Exactly. Even if it is a little disingenuous, I read this smiling because I felt Dawkins managed to put the right. Space right. to it.
1: This is much more effective than the debate would be. Oh, I yeah.
0: Think, I you think know? you're
1: right. Now, one of the reasons we were unable to get Richard Dawkins on the show is because while he was in Michigan, he was quite busy because there was uh, a bit of media attention surrounding his visit here. And here to talk with us about... Why there was media attention about Richard Dawkins beyond the the normal is magically replacing her husband, Jeremy. We have Jennifer being here.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: This is your first time on the show, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, good to have
2: you. Thank we're you. not saying that we're going to replace him, but this is just like an audition. Yeah. No, <laughs> <thinking of> <laughs> no, I don't think
4: you should replace Jeremy. Testing the <laughs>
2: waters a little bit. They said we needed a female on the
1: show, so. That's right. Um, so. Tell us about what's going on. You work with the Center for Inquiry Michigan, of which reasonable doubts is not affiliated, but we do share an office space. So, tell us a little bit about what happened when Richard Dawkins came to Detroit.
4: Yeah, I'm the assistant director for Center for Inquiry Michigan, and in that role, I help organize numerous events across the state for our members and About a week before our scheduled dinner with Richard Dawkins on October 12th, I got a call from the Wingate Country Club, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had been working with this very nice lady named Olivia, and she'd been extremely helpful. And She called me and said I was just called into my boss's office, he saw Richard Dawkins on Bill O'Reilly last night.
1: Oh jeez. Oh, and
4: boy. he told me that I had to call you and cancel the event because he's not willing to be associated with particular individuals or philosophies.:
1: Wow, mm. they canceled.:
4: Yes, they canceled the event. Yep.
1: Oy. Um, so where do you go from there?
4: Well, the the first thing was we called our our legal director
1: mm-hmm. at the
4: Center for Inquiry, uh, and C- CFI is accustomed to uh, engage in legal advocacy, and we have right. we have lawyers on staff. Uh, actually, uh, Ron Lindsay is also a lawyer as well. Right. He's our and executive director
1: Eddie Tabash, right? Yeah, there's Who... a there's
4: a lot of people involved. So they said, okay, we'll look into it. You work on finding another venue. So right
1: for a sold out event, it's it's hard for a venue to turn down a lot of money for an event that's already sold itself. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to do anything for it. Well, and that's
4: and that's the thing we didn't ask them to publicize the event at all. It was a private right. fundraiser. So the only the only way that they were listed anywhere was For me to give the address to the attendees, yeah, so they know where they're going.
1: So, like on the Mm. emails you sent out for the event, right? And and so people knew how to get there,
4: right? It was very clearly being hosted by our organization, right?
2: Jen, you were talking about the legal advice, the legal situation. I I was following a lot of comments on this thing, and and some people were taking the stance of, oh, they're privately. Owned, therefore, they can cancel whenever they want, and there's right, no problem. Right. There. So, what 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 did you find? What did we learn from the, the legal people?
4: There are two applicable laws here: the uh, Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm. and also um, the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, which is the which is Michigan's civil rights act.
3: Oh, okay. Mm.
4: Now, the federal act is is broader, and so we have we have better standing under that, and they are actually working on filing. We are pursuing legal action. I don't have details on when that will be submitted, but we'll keep you guys updated. If... A business, regardless of whether or not they're public or privately owned, if they offer what's considered public accommodations, mm-hmm. food and beverage, mm-hmm. services to the public. This includes
1: restaurants, hotels, exactly. anything like that. Yeah. And
4: there's actually specifically listed country clubs
2: Oh, as well. a
4: bullet point. It actually says it right on there. Yeah.
2: So I could, if I had a country club, even if it's private, I couldn't say I don't want to serve Jews or blacks
4: or... Yeah. That would or, It's or the I exact guess. same thing. Yeah, religion, race... Gender mm-hmm. and age are, are some of the protected classes. Right. So it's irrelevant that they're privately owned. Yeah. The law states that they, if the business says that they are open to the public, they op- offer public accommodations, it means that all persons shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of goods, services, facilities, privileges, and accommodations of any place of public accommodation as defined by this section, which is uh, Title Two of the federal civil rights law. Mm-hmm. Without discrimination or segregation on the grounds of race, color, religion, or national origin.
1: Yeah, and, and this was the the law that got rid of separate drinking fountains and lunch exactly. counters and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
4: some people have said, "Well, you guys are atheists, so you don't you're not a religion, therefore it's not a religion. therefore right. you're not covered." Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. Um,
1: well, it is true. We're not a religion.
0: It's
4: true we're not a religion, but that doesn't dis- <laughs> just
0: to clarify. Right. But, but, but that doesn't dis- irreligion
4: would
2: fall into that as well. Yes. right? Yes, it is.
4: It's the freedom of religious expression. Exactly.
2: Right. What was Dawkins' immediate reaction? And had this have happened to him before, or I mean, this, or was he surprised?
4: He was outraged.
2: <laughs> as he often is.
4: Uh, <laughs> his I actually have a quote from one of the press articles here. It says. Um, this is sheer bigotry. The club had said, I'm not having Dawkins because he's a Jew or he's black or he was gay. He would never have gotten away with it. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, it seems... Uh... Which Dawkins is all of those things. <laughs> yes, he's a gay black Jew.
4: Uh-huh. Well, the thing, that, The thing that really gets me is that he just took Bill O'Reilly at his word.
0: He's been on Bill O'Reilly
1: before, too, right? right? But, but what happened on the Bill O'Reilly show was not what he was expecting. Weirdly enough.
4: Uh, Dawkins was on Bill O'Reilly to promote his new book, The Magic of Reality, How Mm -hmm. We Know What's Really True. Right. Uh, Which is the way that the book is set up is that it begins each chapter asking a big question about
0: About the universe. What's the
4: sun? What is a rainbow? Who is the first person? This is a a kid's book? It's a crossover book. It's uh, geared towards ages uh, sixth grade and up. Oh,
0: excellent! It's about the
4: sixth grade reading level, but you get a copy of
0: that. (laughs) So it goes in, uh, doesn't it? Kind of introduce these these concepts, and then it it tells how people have traditionally, uh, in different cultures, explained such things.
4: Exactly, it starts with a question, and then it lists several different myths from Hmm. all around the world. But the Judeo-Christian myth is listed in there as a myth, right? And that's where Bill O'Reilly went off.
1: Myth is not a pejorative term. It's not. People don't understand that because they're using But they the... think it's the right. truth.
4: It's not a myth.
1: Right, so, right.
4: Uh, it's just mythogeny. So, yes. yeah, the book is yeah designed <laughs> to teach kids about science and myths, not, right. not about God. It talks about many different gods. There's all but kinds of But it's not gods.
1: promoting atheism so much as it's promoting skeptical thinking, or no. is it even it, even that? It's... Is he saying this is the better way to view things using science and yes. skepticism? Okay, yeah. So he's promoting science and skepticism. He's not saying there is no God. You're a fool if you believe it.
4: Right. The, the Bill O'Reilly interview was really incoherent to begin with.
1: <laughs> well, it's Bill <laughs> O'Reilly. I, I you know. Tide goes in, tide goes out. And then out. he
4: tried to c- compare Dawkins to Pol Pot and Mao and oh, Stalin.
0: that old thing?
2: <laughs> yeah. You,
4: if you haven't watched it... It's cringeworthy, but it's interesting to... I was, uh, I, was,
2: uh, I was watching on Friendly Atheist and saw a clip of the interview with American Atheist President David Silverman yeah. and, and he was at, and he was being asked about his appearance on Bill O'Reilly's show before because I think he's been on there multiple times That and was he says, the uh, tide
1: goes in, tide goes and out incident yeah, yeah,
2: and they have those pictures of his incredulous yeah, face like jaw, at, and he said dropping. the reason he looked like that was because during the breaks he says Bill O'Reilly's just gracious and very intelligent and yeah. like, mentioning things and he's well read and then as soon as the cameras roll he tried turns into this person that you don't even recognize asking, you know, well, why were that and so that's why he was looking at him funny, is because yeah. he was Registering this delay like, is this the same guy I was right. just talking to who could converse about yeah, a variety yeah. of subjects? And now you're turning – your IQ just dropped like 30 points. Let's be generous and say that Bill O'Reilly knows who his listeners are and, yeah. and he plays to that. So uh, what, what other explanation do you But mean? then right. this guy
4: at Wingate just takes Bill O'Reilly at his word without even cracking open the cause book cause to see if what yeah. he was saying because
1: is true. Because he's the listener that Bill exactly. O'Reilly is playing to. Yep. He probably has the Bill O'Reilly
0: tote bag. Dawkins being a prominent atheist was really enough. He might not have been aware of who Dawkins was necessarily, but then he's like, oh, he's this guy who's associated with this movement, regardless of what he's what his newest book says. It's right. kind of like, I don't want to be
3: associated with this. He just assumed he had the legal right then to cancel the Right. He apparently didn't give a, a second thought to, I might actually get sued for this. He should know better This than might that. backfire. Yeah,
4: well, I think they I, might have had a hint because they were very careful not to say atheist when they talked to me on the phone. But certain individuals or philosophies is yeah. pretty clear. I mean, we've seen right. ample
2: so. evidence over the you know with all the surveys and things like that about where atheists rank in regards to other things. And mm-hmm. he, for many people who aren't you know that's just one step above child molester and terrorist maybe. So they really probably think that they're uh, on. Firm ground, too.
4: right? I think that they were trying to avoid cover uh, their asses. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think they're trying to Yeah, exactly. And I don't so, mean to be
2: critical, but well, Dawkins probably shouldn't have titled his book tour like "indoctrinating children" tour. That was, <laughs> is that when pretty, I've read,
4: nice. I've read a good portion of the, of that book now, and it he doesn't just call out the Judeo-Christian myth in right. in the in that section where they actually that part is the creation myth is talked about. He talks about a myth from Tanzania. He talks about one from, I think, the Aztecs or one of one of the other creation Basically myths.
1: Basically the same thing I do but in it's, my it's class. But
4: it's grouped in like three. It's like there's three there's three yeah. or four myths at the beginning of each chapter that mm. talk about it. So it's not just one.
3: The insulting thing is for people to see their precious myth grouped in with others Absolutely. from different cultures. That's right. that's, that's what's it really offensive about You believe about that God the
2: causes the sun to go around and this other culture believes you have to rip the hearts out of their body cavities <laughs> exactly. to keep the sun from coming. It's six of one half dozen of the yeah. Yeah.
3: other.
0: Yeah, right. Some right. people sacrifice each other. Some people <laughs> Second place, gods, some people. Now,
1: so because of this, what I consider a very clear case of discrimination based on uh, religious belief or lack thereof, I guess, um, there is now a, a lawsuit that will be moving forward.
4: Yes, we are working on pursuing all available legal remedies. That's mm-hmm. nice lawyer talk there. <laughs> legal uh,
0: remedies. <laughs>
4: and the final decision of whether or not it was discrimination, that's actually found out through the legal process. Right, right. Uh, and I'm
1: saying in my opinion. Yes. I'm not speaking oh, yes.
4: for any. Actually, the, looking through the case law and the various things, it's pretty clear cut that mm-hmm. atheists are covered under that. Sure act. And it, there was actually an amendment that some of congressmen back in 1964 tried to get passed that would ex- specifically exclude non-religious people oh, from those wow. protections and it passed wow.
0: the house
4: but then it didn't make it through the Senate bill. Holy cow.
0: Jeez.
1: Wow, I didn't That's I have not heard of that before.
4: Was Sean F-19. Faircloth brought that up. Sean's oh. the new legal director for the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Oh wow. Wow lawsuit will be filed sometime soon. I don't have specifics on that. And the night, the interesting thing with filing this lawsuit is that actually, this spring is bringing more attention to the Wingate and right, right. to this entire situation than it ever would have.
1: If they had just, if they had just done the let events, us, if
4: right. they just let us have the event, there's been probably a dozen Right. Articles on this. Oh Could, yeah. Well, there's yeah. one fortunate
2: thing is usually when you have a scandal, you have to add the word "gate" at the end to make it like <laughs> Watergate. Actually, or Liz know, Cornwell Goof-gate or whatever like that. So this one, Wingate. Wingate. Wind, Windgate, Wingate gate. We could call it win-win gate or lose gate, <laughs> but the, p- my point is, let's be thankful that it already had the gate, and we are not awkward in adding it.
1: Always so. looking on the bright side of things.
2: Well, actually, Liz
4: Cornwell actually nice. called it, dubbed it win gate gate at our dinner that <laughs> that night. Nice. So that was funny.
1: So now I, I realize this is this was an unfortunate event. It's representative of a lot that's wrong. In uh, the way people treat atheists, we'll talk more about that later on in the show. But I I can't help but think that the fact that this is getting as much press attention as it is, is ultimately going to be, well, more positive thing for CFI than it is for Wingate. I think Wingate, like you said, is going to be hurt by this a lot more. Um, and CFI, it's, it's increasing awareness, again, like the billboard recently.
4: Exactly, and that's why we think that these kind of situations, though they tend to be stressful and they do cause yes, more work for us, mm-hmm. are, are very important uh, because it actually shows that there are problems with people still discriminating yeah. against people because of their lack of belief, and that's no different than discriminating Against someone based on their if there's of a pattern. Skin. But this
2: is the no. second time that you're involved in this. So you're sort of like a magnet.
4: You're like the guy at <laughs> the baseball
2: team that they send out to get, to take a hit from the pitch, so he gets on. Ow! base. Oh, that must have stung. For yeah. zombies, <laughs> no. You're you're the stalking horse for the h- anger and magnetism. You're a magnet for criticism. <laughs> but it's you know it's
1: it is great that that very publicly CFI is fighting this discrimination as opposed to going. Um, not going through the courts and just saying, "Hey, we were discriminated against." This is this is a way to establish legal precedent or exactly.
3: reestablish because it's already. Well, hey, we're, right,
4: we're, right. Yeah, so long as so long as we're successful. Yeah. Right. Or
3: as a bit of a confession, some of us atheists, including myself, have thought, "Oh, well, they're oh, a sure. private country club. They have a right to do that." I I kind of feel embarrassed admitting this, but I was surprised to find out. No, they don't well, have but, legal standing yeah. to do that so it it serves an educational tool to our own community, absolutely
1: all right, well, very interesting um hopefully soon, Jennifer, you'll get a month where you're not dealing with uh some <laughs> kind of
2: I say send her in she's like the Rosa Parks here just, you know, I don't want to be grandiose here, but Rosa Parks comes to mind wow. just let's just sit put a mic on her, watch them like smack her and and discriminate against her, and then we'll have. Thanks, Material. <laughs> you can take it because you okay. can take it. You're tough. You're a being. Because I'm
4: tough. Okay. All
2: right. Yeah. All right. Well, well, then,
4: well, then I'll take that as a compliment. It right? ain't easy it's being a skeptic.
2: Uh, <laughs> Rosa Parks. What could be more of a compliment? Uh,
1: so, uh, well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, uh, speaking of uh, non-religious groups being discriminated against. Um, In the news recently, the Foundation Beyond Belief was essentially not allowed to give half a million dollars or more to the American Cancer Society. The American Cancer Society said, no, we will not take your money. Well, they didn't really say, no, we won't take your money. But here's the situation. I'm going to say,
3: who refuses half a million dollars (laughs) for any reason? They essentially
1: did. Is, is the way it works out. It started off with the humanist philanthropist uh, Todd Stiefel, who um, decided he wanted to um, offer matching funds of a quarter of a million dollars to um, the Foundation Beyond Belief, which regularly raises money and gives it to different charitable organizations. That's what they do. That's what the Foundation Beyond Belief is there for, run by Dale McGowan, former guest of the show. And the idea was they were going to offer this quarter million dollars in matching funds for a Relay for Life team. Relay for Life is American Cancer Society's one of their big fundraisers. Where it's
3: not a pro-life relay. <laughs> no, no. It's, that always throws me off, actually. <laughs> Whenever I see <laughs> you for life, I always immediately yeah. assume.
1: No, Relay for Life is… Uh, anti-cancer, right. yes, not anti-choice. And what they do is, is it's you know like any um, sponsored walk or run where um, you raise money for the walkers and uh, it gets donated to the charity. Well, what the Foundation Beyond Belief wanted to do was set up a national Relay for Life team drawing on local humanist, atheist groups, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and what that means is they would be listed on Relay for Life's website and amongst their donors as an official team. And only really by being a national team would they be able to get the quarter of a million dollars to match uh, Todd Stifle or Stiefel. I apologize, sir. Feel free to donate to us. Um, Matching funds so and usually with these, what you get is more than the equivalent amount, so it could have been easily over half a million dollars that was coming in in the name of Foundation Beyond Belief through local humanist and atheist groups and um, the American Cancer Society first was was very excited to take it, according to um, uh, both the Foundation Beyond Belief, Stale McGowan on their website, and uh, Greta Christina, one of our friends at Freethought Blogs, in an alternate article where she explains the whole process. And slowly, American Cancer Society kind of put up walls and stopped responding to mails. And then they said, oh, no, we're not taking these from nonprofit groups anymore, which is fine, except that they are. There are other nonprofit groups that have national uh, Relay for Life teams, um, and then they said, "Well, let's funnel this through youth organizations because that's another uh, a subgroup that Relay for Life deals with is youth organizations." So we'll use the youth organizations, uh, local, national uh, humanist youth groups, and they said, "One person said they were." Um, downplaying the youth organizations after another person had said we're really trying to promote the youth organizations, so they kept getting uh, cross messages, and then finally the American Cancer Society just said no, we're not, we're not taking you as a national team after stonewalling yeah, them for f- a while. I
2: was following all the different releases on this, and a lot of the early things that they said sounded potentially legitimate, but it yeah. started to take on it took on this this. This flavor of rationalizing and or scrambling to try to cobble together some justification, other than the the one of you're an atheist group and we right. don't want yeah, you, your organized money. The degree
0: money. of ad hocness increased over time. Yes, <laughs> it,
2: yeah, yeah
1: rapidly, actually. <laughs> of course, Dale McGowan pointed out in their press release that this is not the first time a group has turned down money from the Foundation Beyond Belief. In fact, it's I believe the fourth time that nonprofits have said no. When, we don't want your money, and but this is really the first one that got any media attention, partly, I think, because it's such a huge amount of money. And he writes, Unfortunately, such policies have the effect of reinforcing stereotypes by keeping a perceived pariah on the cultural margins. Regardless of any short-term benefits to an organization's cash flow, the maintenance, maintenance of pariahs simply isn't good for the culture. So essentially Hmm. what their rationalization is, though they're not saying this, is if people see that we're taking money from this godless atheist organization, then um, I'm not going to give money to them. They think they're going to ultimately lose money by letting
3: pariahs such as atheists donate to them. I don't want to say that the, their excuse is legitimate, mm. because it's not, <laughs> but it does kind of remind me of what happened when Tim Minchin was on that fundraiser in um, Salvation Army. I believe it was in Australia.
2: Oh, uh, Sa- Salvation Army
3: was putting together a Christmas promotional CD Yeah. and included uh, Tim Minchin's song, "The White Wine White in Wine Wine the Sun, okay, which right. is a great, yeah. great song, Tim Minchin. holiday-themed. Yeah. And uh, But it has lyrics saying something to the effect of he's not really into religion, mm-hmm. but he still likes Christmas. And uh, a bunch of uh, Christians protested and said they weren't going to support the Salvation Army anymore, mm. a Christian organization. Right. Because <laughs> they had a atheist on one of their promotional CDs. We taint and infect in everything we t- –
1: Yeah. Well, it, and – There has been, um, at least on Facebook, a sizable response to the American Cancer Society from atheists and even believers who say, look, they're, they're trying to do something good. Let them give you this money. Um, a lot of people saying things like, well, clearly the American Cancer Society doesn't really care about curing cancer because – I was
2: going to say, should the, uh, should the commercial have somebody on an IV drip going like, you know, when you're getting – when you're on <laughs> chemo, you don't give a crap where the money comes from. <laughs> yeah. Just keep the chemo going. I mean <laughs> – I, I uh, This drop was brought to you by atheists. Do you want that in <laughs> your arm? No, I don't. I <laughs> the atheist
3: s- paid for the part of the medication that is giving you the side effects. Yeah, yeah. right. The vomiting
2: from the atheist, tumor reduction from Christians. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> and I, I can, I certainly understand the frustration. I. I don't know that I would say the American Cancer (laughs) Society doesn't really care about fighting cancer. You can
0: say that they're acting a bit cowardly in this case. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think it's – I think they made the wrong decision. Um, I think they made a decision that obviously it backfired in that it's keeping them from getting this half a million dollars that they would have gotten. But, you know, people saying I'm never giving to them again – I, I don't. I don't know if that's the right takeaway from this. To go. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Let's
2: that not be as petty as they. As yeah, people are. I mean that's that's my feeling on <laughs> it, but. I was wondering whether we should take a survey of the guy, of the people who work with cancer, like the scientists, and see how many of them were atheists. Good point. Your yeah, money, your money goes to point. support... I guess you can't <laughs> accept
3: this cure either. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yes, I just
2: invented this tumor reduction thing, but I'm an atheist, so you probably wouldn't be interested, would you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, but that's uh, my bitchy moment. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point. Um, shall we head into some God
2: things, like you? He does think like us, and he he's does. and he wants you to continue.
1: Now, um, I actually wanted to start off this God Thinks Like You because there was an article I read that relates uh, tangentially to God Thinks Like You for, for this week. This was in the Christian Post, the most Christian of all posts, uh, entitled... How Anger Fuels Atheistic Arrogance. You gotta love that title from Uh, the get-go, don't you? uh,
3: (laughs) Wow. Atheist smash. Let
1: me read the uh, introduction of this article. The majority of people in the world believe there is a God. Many of them don't yet know him personally through faith in Jesus, but they nevertheless accept that he exists. Atheists, on the other hand acts like their subjective opinion on the matter carries the weight of a papal edict.
3: Really? Wow. Which is
1: amazing (laughs) because Catholics actually follow papal edicts, um, whereas we don't. They believe their enlightened wisdom is infallible. In that sense, atheists collectively represent the papacy for unbelievers.
0: There's so much incredibly wrong with what you oh, oh, heard Oh, it's, so far. it's
1: <laughs> astonishingly so. In their estimation, they are at the highest level among non-Christians. So there's a hierarchy among non-Christians and atheists. We are the cream of the crop, okay? Uh, Natural man is very proud of himself. His achievements and knowledge Natural are exceptionally man. impressive to him. The extreme example of this attitude is atheism. It represents the proudest of the proud. There is no room in atheistic thought for a contrary viewpoint.
3: This uh, is the most straw man-ish.
1: Oh, no, it, it gets they can worse. can do no good. You want straw man? I'll give you straw man. When natural man embraces atheism, you often end up with a ticking time bomb. Mm. The seething anger lies just beneath the surface for many atheists, even for those, quote, sophisticated atheists who are able to put up a good front for the public. Their, quote, inner workings are usually filled with rage against God and Christians. So
3: Jeez. even when atheists <laughs> see God- I wanna know what
0: kind of like weird little so meter like, they're reading Before we
3: get up to the podium, we go like, suppress rage. <laughs> <laughs> cannot, I, don't I don't believe don't in know. you and you pissed me off. <laughs> they cannot see my hate. <laughs>
1: but on the opposite side, he says, real Christians don't hate atheists. Mm. Real Christians love atheists. And you could just feel the love oozing out of his editorial oh, yes, here. here. Real atheists, on the other hand, have an inner hatred for Christ that gets directed at believers.
0: I freaking hate Christ.
1: Just like I hate oh, let me at him. Dr. Doom. <laughs> Hold me back. <laughs> <laughs> that is the natural result of man rejecting God as his creator. Hundreds of millions of people have been slaughtered by dictators who hate God and hate their own perception of religion.
0: Hate that, their own perception of religion. Yeah.
1: This is perhaps the most egregious statement in the entire article.
0: Too. Yeah, yeah, really confusing.
1: <laughs> what begins as an enjoyable exercise, and it, he refers to atheism as intellectual fornication, um, something that college kids experiment mm, with. I would agree. What begins... <laughs> What begins as an intellectual exercise often turns into a crusade.
0: Do you really want to use that term?
1: Yeah. <laughs> is that –
3: is that – Is that the best well, they term? Don't, <laughs> they don't have a non-religious term for a holy yeah. war, so – And
1: there's a reason <laughs> for that. <laughs> Furthermore, it would be judgmental for any Christian to say we are better than atheists. Okay? Just just to clarify that. Mm. Those hateful, arrogant bastards. Yes,
3: it would be judgmental. Yeah. We We only hate, whereas we only love. Yes. (laughs) It would be wrong.
1: Meanwhile, (laughs) it's judgmental to say that Christians are better than atheists. But if everyone in the world was an atheist, the population would shrink drastically and violently.
0: I, I think, think the they're right about drastically would. drastically yeah <laughs> but, but violently I don't I don't know. statistics show that I feel like they would need the supplies a bit more evidence watch for that those claim. Danes
2: and Swedes slug it out.
0: yeah yeah <laughs> we're going to build a bridge to your country
2: okay come on over <laughs> no no guys
0: Swedes
1: <laughs> some of you, as the writer says here, some of you are right now having a strong a very strong reaction to this idea recognize it, own it, overcome it. Or not, the choice truly is up to you. Your reaction is evidence either of your atheistic anger or of God's grace at work in your soul. You can't get around it. One or the other is happening.
3: Well, we know what one is. So the fact that I'm not terribly angry at this writer and more just find this humorous is actually an evidence of God's grace working in my heart.
1: What what's my bemusement evidence of?
3: So I can't even I can't even win on that if I'm not actually made furious it's still God gets the God it's, gets the credit exactly
0: so if you're not furious, or are you just not being honest with us? You're
1: not right, real. right. oh that's right, that's right. <laughs> your inner workings are angry as hell yep so uh, and that's written by Dan Delzell. Who's a pastor at Wellspring Lutheran Church in Nebraska? Hey,
2: Lutherans! Hey, Nebraska!
1: (laughs) Yeah, Luke's uh, home state. That was enlightening. (laughs) So. Now, okay. uh, apparently, this is why atheists are so arrogant, which he never really does explain, is because we're so angry.
0: Now, uh, I don't really know how that relates.
1: Luke, there's a.
3: a I new didn't even see an argument there. No, I saw a <laughs> no, string of claims just left floating.
2: <laughs> Therefore, on we're, see, we're that's arrogant. That's because Jeremy, that you are you're thinking in a methodical rather than an intuitive way. Ah, that's right.
1: Ooh which leads us to our topic of God Thinks Like You today.
2: The intuitive thought process uh, that where people shoot from the hip, essentially, is, is actually there's been an interesting study recently that finds that that's directly related to being religious, and that is that people who tend to think uh, in in broad conceptual sort of strokes rather than methodically breaking things down and reflecting, uh, tend to be more religious. This is a, a fascinating study because they actually do several different ways to get at the same concept. This is published uh, in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General Edition. The author's name is Shenhav from from Harvard. But what he does is that he gives people a series of problems to test their, their, in, their tendency to either Go about it methodically versus uh, in an intuitive flash. And some of these you might have heard of in these like um, brain teaser puzzle books, where they'll say like a ball and a bat together costs a buck ten, and the bat is a dollar more than the ball. So how much does the the uh, and and the bat costs a dollar? How much does the ball cost?
1: No, 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 no. It's it's the bat costs yeah, the, oh, more a dollar more than, than the, the ball. The ball. Yes. Total, it's a dollar ten. Now. Intuitively, I read that and I went, the bat can't cost a dollar because that's only 90 cents more than the the 10 cents.
2: This is evidence of your atheism. I,
1: I I can show that it's not right that way. But damned if I can figure out what the real answer is.
2: See, most people with with rudimentary math skills uh, – Which would, I would do st- not have. Would, could stop and then redo that. But the reason that this is intuitive is because most people look at that and say, oh, I mean, dollar more, dollar ten – that yeah. ball a buck 10 and and they arrive at that answer very quickly just by scanning it quickly and looking right. at it rather than breaking it down and saying well let's just make sure and check my mm-hmm. you know do all the calculations so there's a string of problems like that where again you have a choice of a quick intuitively obvious situation that's incorrect mm-hmm. or if you go about it methodically you can find with not too much hassle the, the correct one. And what the study showed in in this in the first experiment was there is a linear relationship in the number of problems solved in the incorrect intuitive way uh as opposed to the methodical way, and the person's belief in God. Mm. And they actually – it's not general cognitive – here's what I – my first reaction upon hearing that was, well, maybe it's just IQ. But they went back and they controlled for the person's personality, IQ, education. Mm. So it's not just general cognitive ability. It's a style of thinking, not Mm. just overall Uh. brain power.
1: So the reason, the real reason atheists are so arrogant is because we think better than everyone
2: else. We check and say, am I arrogant? We we devise a questionnaire to measure how arrogant we are. <laughs> we
1: make relevant we distinctions. We cross reference
2: and... between. Yeah, and then in the final series of their studies, they actually induced intuitive thinking. They had to per, they had people write either an essay about um about you know uh, imagine a, something that in your life that's gone well when you've. Mm-hmm. Thought about it quickly and intuitively, and got an, a, And using your own intuition, as opposed to the other group, got an, wrote an essay on. Imagine a time in your life where things have turned out after you've considered methodically how to solve the problem. And again, the people that were in the intuitive priming condition believed in God more than the people who were primed with. So that's an experimental thing. Right. It, you know, you can increase, in other words, temporarily, temporarily, an increase in belief by priming intuitive thinking. Hmm. So I think the reason that this study is cool and it kind of fits in with some other things that we've talked about is it shows that, you know, it's not a matter of even of of stupidity or whatever, but there's a style of thinking, I think, that is associated with belief that is, you know, that's like shooting from the hip, essentially, Mm -hmm. intellectually.
3: Tom Reese from the Epiphenom blog uh, was writing about this study. He says, this might help to explain the apparent link between atheism and IQ. You see, if cognitive style and IQ are linked, it might be that IQ is an innocent bystander here, a case of guilt by association. Hmm. How you think and whether you take the time to ponder things, though, might be all that matters. Hmm. I I, I thought that was interesting. We usually just show these associations between IQ and education levels and atheism, but this really focusing on your cognitive style.
2: Everybody here in this room is representative, unless we suddenly had a... Drank an IQ milkshake and got smarter and lost our religion. Everybody in this room has been religious at some point, right. and I don't right. think that we felt that we were stupid at a no, previous right.
3: point. Not at all.
2: But I think it was more related to being trained in how to think and, and how to apply it systematically yeah. mm-hmm. rather than uh, – yeah. oh, and the other thing that they found – just to, to go back to the study briefly was that they found that this intuitive thinking wasn't correlated with the religion at birth. That is the, the religion the person was raised in, mm-hmm. but it was more correlated with shifts in religion over time, which again, mm-hmm. just like we were talking about, you know, what religion you are you know, typically in adolescence and young adulthood is more related – not to your IQ or anything like, or your personality, but where you were raised. If you're raised with a religious family, mm-hmm. but people who had this sort of uh, methodical tendency to break down and not think intuitively might drift. This these results would indicate that they drift away from religion. That some people stay and some people move, and that that movement is associated with the critical thinking and, and methodical right. thinking.
3: Uh, it was as well stated. It, it bothers me on both sides. Either when when the religious assume atheists are saying they're stupid or when or the rather rare occasion where i actually do hear atheists painting with a broad Mm -hmm. brush claiming all religious believers are morons and as as you said we all know we were all religious at one point we didn't think we were stupid back then although
1: to be fair Um, looking back at at myself, I realize how stupid I've been my entire life and <laughs> well, as I get yeah, older, yeah, even more so. But,
2: that's yeah, that's a success prop- I feel the same way, yeah. Dave, that you've been stupid. During- <laughs> <laughs> just kidding.
3: No, but we've, we've tried yeah. to emphasize again. It's not genius. It's not brilliance. It's right. method. And um, the study seems. And, to be I, and
2: I would be willing to, to, in regards to the article from Christian Post that he just read, I think that um, actually, if, if you consider humility as in being aware of the limitations of your own thing and wanting to cross-check that with other people, I think atheists are more humble. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, was, mm. I, I'm, such a. I, I'm not in an alliance with the very, creator of the universe, and I humble. realize how flawed my thinking is. That's why yeah. I'm interested in psychology, is right. because yeah. that I, it's, it's it's not. It's reliable. interesting because
0: like the people I know in person that are atheists are uh as we say you know pretty epistemically humble if you go on <laughs> the internet party. uh which i do and i shouldn't be doing
4: yeah. um
0: <laughs> holy crap like yeah. it's embarrassing like there's a there's so many atheists out there that just want to dismiss things
1: a lot of and, that's and just I, the I,
0: internet tough talk i get though. so Who's sick of that crap and i yeah, really I, wish I agree. the people on on our side would not engage in that kind of thing it's just it yeah it gets so old, and it's it's really a problem.
3: I, I wonder if people who spend a lot of their times on the forums are, are there because they otherwise are not sociable outside of the Internet. <laughs>
2: you hear what what are you thought? saying, I, Jeremy? I, I, I saw a quote for the not guy not from everyone. I know people listen to podcasts. There or, was, from, <laughs> the, the guy from Wilco was a quote from They were asking him about trolls, and he's like, here's how the Internet goes. Here's a picture of a, a cute cat. Oh, that's a beautiful kitten. Then somebody will say, that kitten's an effing social. That's every troll that you've ever
1: seen. (laughs) Kittens are effing socialists. All right. uh, Time now for some counter apologetics.
3: Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's
4: now time for counter apologetics.
3: Yes, well, we were talking about uh, William Lane Craig earlier and how he keeps on challenging Dawkins to debate. Even though Dawkins is not a professional philosopher, he, he wouldn't even be somebody really qualified to debate Craig on the things that Craig likes to debate. I guess the flip side of that scenario would be John Loftus. Uh, if you're not familiar with John Loftus, John Loftus is a former Christian apologist. Right. Uh, student. Who is now is an atheist and a student of William Lane Craig's. Yes, right, yes, yes. Who has challenged Craig to debate many times, uh, could debate Craig point by point on a number of issues, and Craig refuses to debate right. him.
1: And as Loftus points out – Craig has said a number of times, this, the scariest person to debate is a former student of yes. my own. Mm. So um,
0: Now, Craig says he won't debate former students just as a general rule. What Maybe I'm blind to what those potential reasons are, like for professionalism or something to this effect.
3: Uh, when Paul instructs believers not to lead other believers deeper into sin mm. for some reason— I think Craig thinks of any former student of his as – that may have strayed from the faith as maybe still having a chance no. and that if he debates he this debates person, someone's. he might drive them further into but darkness. But that's not true of everyone else he debates. Okay. Clearly fits the type the vast of majority, rationalization that we were talking about.
0: Right. The vast majority of. of people he's debated anyway are are probably usually uh, former Christians in some sense. And
3: yeah. yeah. Many of them are.
0: Huh. Interesting.
3: I wanted to turn to an argument for today's counter-apologetics formulated by John Loftus.
0: Who runs the blog uh, DebunkingChristianity.blogspot.com, I believe. Mm -hmm.
3: That's correct. And is also the editor of The Christian Delusion, Why Faith Fails. The argument of his that I wanted to examine is called The Outsider Test for Faith. The idea of the outsider test for faith, well, it's actually can be stated pretty simply, so I'm going to read his argument from his chapter on it in The Christian Delusion. Premise one, rational people in distinct geographical locations around the globe overwhelmingly adopt and defend a wide diversity of religious faiths due to their upbringing and cultural heritage. This is the religious diversity thesis. Number two is the religious dependency thesis. Consequently, it seems very likely that adopting one's religious faith is not merely a matter of independent rational judgment, but is causally dependent on cultural conditions to an overwhelming degree. Yeah. Premise three. Hence, the odds are likely that a given adopted religion, religious faith, is false. So, conclusion, the best way to test one's adopted religious faith is is from the perspective of an outsider with the same level of skepticism used to evaluate other religious faiths. This expresses the outsider test for faith. He believes that anthropological studies, psychological studies, sociological studies, or demographic data would all support uh, those first three premises. Uh, And I think that that... Pretty much yeah. pans out with what we've seen on uh, God. thinks like you, yeah, I don't think those are controversial Correct, Luke, claims as far at all. As yeah, I mean, we you're... do we do find some people leaving um, leaving their faiths for another faith, but for the most part, that tends to be within the core religion. Christians usually will just change a denomination or a sect within Christianity. For the most part. For the most yeah. part.
2: Yeah, I, when I do this exercise in class, I've had people say, "But I was raised, a, you know, a just non-denominational Christian, but I became a Methodist, and it's like they they would consider that switching. That's uh, lateral it, movement, right? Yeah, I mean mm. it's like the same with anything else. Of uh, there's a, there's an an group homogeneity effect where you uh, uh, where you or hetero uh, where, where you think that basically when you're within an in group, there there's everything else everyone is everyone else is
1: different. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and so you you think it's more of an extreme to change from Episcopal to Methodist or something like that, and that's a shift, whereas anybody else from outside would look at that and say, but you're accepting the core tenets of Jesus right, right. and yeah. blah, 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 yeah. so yeah. how Where has that has, How much
3: has your doctrine changed?
2: People say, but then they dropped away from the faith or became whatever, angry or rebellious, and then they came back to it, so that's a switch. But and again, in regards to you're accepting... You're not going outside the faith. It's not like you're yeah, having right. a whole new set of, oh, wait. It's you It's know not what? like
1: going from Christian to Hindu, Hindu which or, does yeah. happen, of course. Sure, they but, happen.
2: Yeah, if you look at the switching and then uh, if you look at the surveys of switching, pe- people basically stay, you know, 90 – the percentage varies depending on where you are. But like 90-some percentage of people stay right in the same channel.
1: There, mm. There is this uh, – we'll have to post this. Too, but there is a, a graphic of a chart that uh, charts people from childhood faith group to their current faith group.
2: I think it's based on the Pew Forum survey that, that of religious switching, if you want to yeah. see the, the whole data. But the graph I like because it organizes it visually. and it, it It's of, in
1: color, and it, and it looks great. Color
2: and everything, My so.
1: favorite part of it, because it has different groups, the none, non-religious, Catholic, evangelical, black Protestant, mainline, and other – and you see movement all over the place except black Protestants are a straight line from childhood faith <laughs> to their current faith group. It is, it's is—it's just a solid blue line. Connecting one to the other. Yeah, I
2: mean, we all, we their music all think their music's awesome. And it's probably. Because <laughs> it. their music's
0: awesome. I mean, let's be honest. I guess. If you had
2: to join a fun church. <laughs> that's it's, true. It's, I think we can all think of examples of, of, of churches that tend to pick up and other ones that are very sticky, where you yeah. never, you know, you you, you pretty much. Uh, And we've talked about that also, like some of the more conservative churches tend to retain members more. And and like right now, mainline or moderate Protestants are sort of hemorrhaging believers because people are leaving.
1: Actually, Catholicism is the one that lost the most.
2: And it lost the most, although it also picks up the most through immigration and because of Hispanics. So, yeah. So in regards to the the thesis that people basically stick within and don't switch, then, yeah, I mean, it's really obvious.
3: Well, so it ties this into what we were talking about earlier, right, with all the the research on how a more intuitive style of thinking goes hand in hand with religious faith. Well, looking at that, we could see then why people tend to think that their own religious claims are very rational, very sensible, and have a hard time of seeing how their faith claims are no different from… Uh, the majority of other faith claims out there in the world. So the second part of his argument is designed to jolt people into a kind of skepticism about their own faith claims.
2: And that always struck me, and I, I always wondered why that doesn't strike other people more. When I first, yeah. when you're first exposed to things like, right. if, for me it was going to college and, and having to hear, oh, there's somebody who's a Jew or an atheist or whatever, and that sort of corroded my – my unitary like everybody that i knew was lutheran you know and and then it then that was an expanding circle and then there's non-christians blah 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 and then i I, it struck me that if i would have been raised in another place i would have just as easily accepted that thing and to to me that was corrosive and it always strikes me as odd that that other people for some people that just bounces right off
1: yeah this this outsider test well is equally brilliant and kind of self-apparent in a lot of ways. Like,
2: duh. Right. So you know? why doesn't it occur to other people I, when they're exposed to it? I that? do not know.
3: Yeah, well, and what I like is it is not trying to establish the existence of God right. uh, or the non-existence of God. The argument is trying to convince you of the methodology you should take exactly. when approaching yeah. claims. Adopting the outsider test for faith, it doesn't entail naturalism on your behalf. Mm -hmm. It doesn't entail atheism. Maybe what it does suggest is that you should take a kind of, he says, uh, a hypothetical agnosticism. Mm -hmm. For the moment, put on the lenses, the glasses of an agnostic
2: and try to see the world (laughs) – to Rawls's uh, veil of ignorance test, but that when yeah. you're thinking, that's for for people who are familiar with that. It's when you're evaluating whether something's like right or wrong. Uh, you can't right. think about how it affects you personally as your starting point. So you have to say like for example taxes or something you have to put yourself into a situation where you don't know whether you're the rich person right, or the right. poor person right. make a decision about the the rightness or wrongness on the basis without knowing where how it would affect you yeah. personally
3: then thought experiment to try to guide you into arriving at a fair social contract
2: i know it struck right. me as idea. similar similar hmm. to this and so, so
3: yeah I, if you were to put this in rawlsian terms it would be Uh, suggesting a methodology that would help you to arrive at a fair assessment of religious claims uh, despite your background. Because as Loftus points out, when Christians are usually evaluating the faith claims of other religions, they tend to do one of two things. They either beg the question and just accept their own religious propositions and Mm – and just say, well, clearly uh, Islam is is stating that uh, that Jesus wasn't God, and the Bible says that so Jesus was. Wrong. So they must yeah. be wrong. Well, that's useless because it's completely circular. Right. Or the other option is to adopt a kind of a skepticism towards one side only. Right. You you start to evaluate. Well, these these holy books appear to be written by human beings or these miracles can be explained away from science and you don't fairly do that with your own side. And so uh, the outsider test of faith is basically just saying if you would approach the other side skeptically in that manner, you should approach your own claims the same way. It's basically a call for intellectual integrity. Now, so uh, what would religion look like if somebody was to approach their religious claims with this methodology well, we already know, <laughs> right? Because right. it's essentially how we would approach it. But Loftus uh, explains, well, for one, you wouldn't take biblical claims at face value anymore, right. either about you know theological claims about the nature of God or miracle claims, or just beyond the Bible, we would say we wouldn't take anecdotal accounts of your religious experience as being proof of any kind of metaphysical claims, right? Because anyone can, mm-hmm. right. anyone uh, from any religion has has rich religious experiences and
0: sincere ones at that.
3: Right. We would look for independent any sort of independent reasons for these beliefs. Some people think this outsider test for faith is unfair. It's stacking the deck too much, right, in one direction. But look at all the cosmological arguments. Uh, all the philosophically based arguments would still be in play at this right, point. Right. If you had decent historical criteria for arriving at the idea that any of these miracles were actually sound, mm. if you could prove that from historical methods alone.
1: Right. So you're saying they, the deck is stacked in the favor of
0: right, so reality. Is what it comes down uh, to, yeah, and they don't like that. It's not insisting some kind of like a priori dismissal of, of these ideas. Yeah, exactly. It's simply saying, look, find a good methodology and, and apply it everywhere. Right. You
1: know? Yeah, exactly. Pl- uh, apply it as fairly to your own religion as you would to any other religion. Right.
0: Yeah.
3: I do have some objections to the outsider test for faith. Maybe a more interesting question is do do we actually think this would work? I think, I think that they –
0: think that they're already doing that. Some of the more, some of the yeah. apologetic types think that this is actually what they've been doing. All oh, yeah, along. that's what I
1: do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, Yeah, I asked this. I, as of course, <coughs> would disagree. William uh, Lane Craig Beam would probably say that. So, yeah, this right. is clearly, I've done this. Well, not, have um, you really? Not necessarily so, yeah.
2: I, I've asked this in class to, to get people to, to sort of think of that mode, or I give them like an example of like a desert island thing where let's say you're on Castaway Island with... With a volleyball or whatever, but mm-hmm. but the exception <laughs> is that you don't have any memory. You hit your head in the crash, and you can't remember what religion you're supposed to be. Right. So you have time to read all the books that you have there. Mm-hmm. There's the Bible and a Quran and, a, you know, all these different and, and Shakespeare, and Socrates. You yeah. know, and you're so going wh- to an
0: interfaith <laughs> conference when the so, plane crashed. So
2: what <laughs> would you cho- what would you choose if you didn't have any knowledge of what religion was supposed to be the correct one? And so they kind of chew on that a bit. But again, a lot of people you know, reject it and say, I think God intended me to be a Christian and that's the one I would gravitate to. Or some of them say that they would, you know, that the Bible would somehow pop out as being the more... Coherent yeah. story or something like that. So one of the studies that I found that was to try to do this empirically, uh, that was a similar test was uh, again our old uh, friend altemeyer and, and Hunsberger, who uh, has written about you know religious matters and authoritarianism before. And he actually mm-hmm. posed the question to his students a similar scenario of what would have happened if you would have been you know switched at birth and raised as a Hindu or a Jew or a Muslim mm-hmm. instead, and then he gave them options like you know you. The, the one that we're talking about is you'd probably believe just as much in those religions as now you do in Christianity, or other options like, well, um, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I would, I would believe less strongly in that other religion than my religion. And he found a range, you know, most people gave the answer that, that we're discussing, that is, you know, I think it was 57% of the students said that they would. Believe in the other religion that they're whatever one they're mm-hmm. raised in, but there was a certain there were a certain proportion about a third who rejected that and said either that they would doubt that religion or that they would, you know, they wouldn't believe as strongly. And it turned out that what differentiated those people one of the things that he looked at that differentiated those people were that they were high fundamentalists.
1: Yeah, uh, I was going to say. I, I, I no. guess it's
2: not any shock. It's sort of a <laughs> see that writing
1: on the wall. Yeah, but but
2: but you know the the irony of that is that the more religiously socialized somebody is into. A religion like yeah. fun, you know, or fundamentalists, the the more immune they are to accepting socialization as an yeah. explanation
3: right, for right, religion. Right, fascinating. Right. Yeah, so, oh. so a lot of the that was very Spockian of you. <laughs> Sorry. Fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> yeah so I guess it's apparent that many many religious believers probably don't think they would need to take the outsider test for faith um, because they feel that uh they they are not choosing along <clears throat> cultural lines in the first place right. well, Why let, investigate it when you know you're
0: right let,
2: let me tell you a quick anecdote. I had a student in class who who i who had previously argued on, along the lines of like free will and things like that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of the religion. And we were talking about the the switching scenario, and she had said the answer of, I think God intended for me to be Christian all along. And I remember that she had talked about free will in the past, and so before moving on, I was like, weren't you saying before that you believe that people are freely Mm decide these things? How is God intending you to be Christian all along compatible with your free will? And the student was sitting in front of her and went... (laughs) like that and, and she launched into like it was one of the biggest arguments i've ever had she's like you're not la- don't laugh at my belief and i had to like all right all right all right we'll just move on but mm. it was, but it was, you know, wow. just, I, I probably shouldn't have asked the question because I might have been badgering her. But it seemed to me that was directly incompatible. Yeah, that's why if, Luke if,
1: gets written up. If for you things.
2: freely choose relig- yes, exactly. If you freely <laughs> choose religion, how how could you have possibly been intended all along to be predestined to, to do it? If, if
3: God preordains you, then mm. can't have it both ways. Right. Well, so some of the objections to the outsider test for faith. Most of them are attacking the religious dependency thesis. So it seems very likely that adopting one's religious faith is not merely a matter for independent rational judgment, not n- merely a matter of independent rational judgment, but is causally dependent on cultural conditions to an overwhelming degree. It's it's actually not that premise that they doubt. It's that what follows from it mm. is that we should then adopt the outsider test for faith so for example people will say well what about outsiders who have converted to Christianity yeah. uh, and uh, they'll mention say the vast number of, of Asian Christians now who are who are converting from native religions right. uh, to Christianity conversion going there's on there's your Asia. outsider test for faith right and well the idea is they were already cultural yeah. outsiders right um, so I, I don't actually understand the nature of the objection. Is it saying that no outsider test for faith is needed as they are already outsiders? As it's or is already
1: it been done in a practical has, level?
3: Right. If one is not from a religious culture or born into a religion, therefore one, if one converts, they are not doing so for merely cultural reasons. So I not I'm not entirely sure about the nature of that objection. Mm. Um some of the other ones are uh, of course focus on uh American Americans do overwhelmingly leave the faith of their parents but as we already discussed that 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 data is it's not a massive switch it's not to an entirely different religion so we might be able to dismiss that objection. Or some some of the very the more clever ones come from uh Platinga holds the outsider test of faith as being uh, self-refuting. Here, here's his case. Do you want Alvin Plantinga here? Yeah. Okay. Plantinga, schmanninga. Whatever. Plantinga says, uh, if the pluralist had been born in, say, Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. Does it follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process, too? So you could just substitute skeptic in there. Apparently, right. mm-hmm. if, if we were born in Turkey, we would be Muslims instead right, of skeptics right. or something. Turkey a bad example. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we might very well be rapidly secular, yes, especially we if we were a member of the military. But right, you, right. you know, yeah. you get the idea. And I
0: think he's confusing um, your stance on particular claims with your actual methodology. I mean, because he's saying... This this kind of understanding, this kind of relationship between geography and and one's beliefs, right. um, you know, us being skeptics, you know, we should we should also we should also be looking at uh, we should be treating our skepticism,
3: yeah, absolutely skepticism. skepticism. <laughs> so <laughs> hard to know what that what right. that would look like. Yeah, exactly. and so I think what it,
0: it's a conf- it confuses the actual like a a belief system right. with your methodology of how you get to that belief system.
3: Yeah. But I I, I I agree, but I think actually some of the confusion is on Loftus's point. Since they're all attacking the religious dependency thesis, I noticed that in Loftus's response to a lot of these objections, he's not he doesn't even bring up or defend the religious dependency thesis. He goes right to the the, the nature of our our methods of justification. And I was thinking about it. You could erase premise two from that argument. And without affecting it a whole lot, think of it this way. What if the religious dependency thesis was not true? What if we lived in a world where the religion you were born into had very little prediction of what religion you would end up with as an adult Mm -hmm. and the people routinely switched?
0: Or the culture Um, you lived in had very little?
3: Would it change the fact that one should approach their own religious claims from an outsider's perspective? Yeah, I don't think or so. Should, no, no. It yeah, doesn't I, seem to have yeah. any impact on the
1: I thought that when you read the, the premises like what, right. what is the necessity of that.
3: So mm-hmm. he seems to be really hanging all of this on a kind of cultural relativism. Either either you are either your beliefs are culturally derived or they are matters of independent rational judgment. Right. Whereas I think, as we all know, they could be both. You could have a right, exactly. uh, you could have a belief that was arrived at in a cultural context. You were following what your parents had taught you, and that sort of thing. And it could still be a justified belief. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think m- my suggestion for improving the outsider test of faith is just to remove the religious dependence- dependency <coughs> thesis. And make this an argument about the nature of justification. Right. I think he's already has this in here when he talks about Christians either just accept their own presuppositions and judge from those, or mm-hmm. they are selectively skeptical. I think he already has that notion built into his argument. Mm-hmm. Right. But you could clarify it by saying you know, your first premise would be something more like Not rational people in distinct geographical locations adopt and defend a diversity of beliefs, but they appeal to faith, and they appeal to religious experience, and they appeal to miracles. And since these often render incompatible results, we should be skeptical about those methods. You wouldn't even have to go that far. You could say, we should not adopt those methods unless they could be applied Consistently, right. You could revise the argument to say something that if we would not accept faith as the basis of a claim in Islam uh, or in a different religion, we should not accept it as a as a means of justifying our own faith.
2: Exactly. Well, here's the people actually. Uh, here's where data comes in, and people actually have a, a different attribution for other people's faith than their own faith. This is something we've right. talked about yeah. before, even from like back from uh, like Shermer's survey in, the, in the, the How We Believe book. Like when people were asked why, what are the reasons you believe, and then when they're asked what are the reasons other people believe, yeah. people right. tend to refer mostly in their own they're case
1: just
2: to, to 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 uh, rational reasons. I believe because there's good design to the universe, yeah. not because I was raised to, but then they switch their standards. Why do other fellow believers, people who share your beliefs, believe people say because they were raised to? Mm-hmm. So mm. clearly people are aware of the fact yeah. that social and environmental conditions lead to belief, but they don't apply it to themselves. They apply that. it to other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So even within the same belief, they're inconsistent.
3: Yeah. Well – one to, one to think about. I, I definitely – I like Loftus's approach. He's addressing the style of thinking Right, right. As we and which,
1: as, we, which as we've before. seen, atheists have a better style of thinking, <laughs> which is why we're smarter, right? Um, I wasn't really paying attention to <laughs> things like you. Uh. It's just realistically do I do no
3: one's – I, I think in my deconversion experience and in most others that I've heard is that people didn't hear one devastating argument against God and go, right. oh, that was it. Um, they had They had their thinking about thinking changed right. in some way their thinking about what were the appropriate standards for evidence and way of conducting an inquiry in the first place had changed and uh, and at least that 's what Loftus is aspiring to do with this particular argument.
1: In Polyatheism, we take a look at some of the many, many other gods throughout history worth not believing in. This week begins with one part of a triune god descending to earth to be born in the form of a man in order to rid the world of evil. His story, regarded by some as the greatest story ever told, is one of the best-known works of literature throughout history, and its influence is still felt to this day. Of course, I speak... Of Rama, renowned as the perfect son, perfect king, perfect husband, and perfect father, as you'll see, he doesn't really live up to all of those titles Is this very one that, well.
2: Did Lady, Ga- Lady Gaga write a song about him?
1: I, I don't know. You must be more familiar with Lady Gaga's catalog than no, It goes than I. rah rah rah, mama. Oh, tell us more. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I. I wondered why you wore the meat dress today. I didn't realize that was I'm making a statement.
2: She's got bad mythology. Okay, we'll go uh, back to Dave.
1: Rama is an avatar <laughs> of the Hindu god Vishnu as in I Vishnu hadn't ruined the word avatar, James Cameron. Oh. <laughs> and his story is told in the epic poem known as the Ramayana. Uh, First to clarify, an avatar is not exactly like the one seen in the film of the same name featuring blue cat-like people who have sex with their hair and fight imperialistic Americans over a rare ore known as crappy
3: scriptium. But they might still have blue skin.
1: Uh, Those avatars are people putting their brains in empty shells so they can look and smell like something else and have sex with their hair. For Vishnu, an avatar is not a simple manifestation like that, but is actually a whole separate identity, who, uncoincidentally, I suppose, also has blue skin much of the time. So, at least Cameron got that part right. Vishnu is to Rama, if you like, as God the Father is to Jesus the man. As I was told in my Christian Reformed youth, Jesus was both 100% man And 100% God. That's the way it works with Rama, too. Unlike the other 200%ers, Rama is (laughs) one of Vishnu's ten avatars, which include a fish, a tortoise, a boar, a half-man, half-lion, a dwarf priest, a regular priest, George Harrison's favorite, Krishna, uh, Buddha, yes, that Buddha, and a tenth
0: avatar, Yet to come. Their Council of Nicaea must have been the most
1: confusing <laughs> gathering
0: of... jeez. Uh,
1: yeah, very much that's so. W- will
3: the that's real like the, Vishnu
2: please stand up? That's like the Mr. <laughs> Deity episode where he's talking about giving him birth to himself. Yeah. <laughs> I give birth to... I'm you, but you're me. Well, yeah, sometimes you're me. They must have had like an octagon
0: as, you know, Christians yeah. have the triangle. Yes. <laughs> like,
1: Vishnu avatars himself in the form of Rama in order to defeat the demon lord Ravana, who is the uh, who is impervious to the supernatural. You can't touch him as a god, so he has to become a man to kick his arse. Rama is born not to a virgin, but to the wife of an infertile king. His mother and her two sister wives, as the Mormons call it, Eat a special food infused with Vishnu's divine essence, and all of them give birth to sons. While his brothers are no slouches themselves, Rama is superior to even them in his appearance, power, intellect, courage, and pretty much everything else. Oh, and of course, he has blue skin, which may or may not be an advantage depending on your viewpoint. As a young man, surroundings. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Blends in well in the water. (laughs) Um, As a young man, Rama wins the hand of the beautiful Sita when he manages to lift a bow so heavy that no one has ever been able to lift it before. Not only does he lift it, but when he uses it, he pulls back the string so tautly that the mighty bow breaks. Sita, renowned for her beauty and charm, was born directly from the the womb of the earth itself, and was found lying in a field. Turns out, people were just better at explaining unwanted pregnancies before the common era. <laughs>
3: wow.
1: Rama and you Sita... Were yeah. a, you were a Mother
3: Earth child. I was left at if You were a Mother Earth child.
1: No, we ate a magic fruit, and that's how we gave birth to you. Oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Rama and Sita fall madly in love and live happily together One day, Rama is due to be crowned king by his aging father until, dun, 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 one of the king's other wives reminds him of a debt he owes her, and she's come to cash it in. Banish Rama, she says, and because the king is a man of his word, he has no other choice but to banish his son for 14 years, even though it breaks his heart to do so. Breaks his heart to the extent that he dies actually, of a heart attack or something. To his credit, Rama takes the news well, and he and Sita head for the woods without a word of complaint. His brother Bharata, who has been away all this time, comes home to find that he has been appointed prince regent. His father is dead, Rama is exiled, and his own mother is to blame. So Bharata rejects his mother and goes off to try to convince Rama to come back. Rama refuses because he's a good, obedient son, and Bharata goes back to rule until Rama returns. While living in the woods, the demon lord Ravana tricks Rama and abducts Sita and takes her back to his kingdom in Lanka, now Sri Lanka. Rather than forcing himself on Sita, however, he's much more of a gentleman, he gives her a year to either decide to marry him or to die by his hand. Teaming up with a band of monkey warriors, which is the greatest sentence I've ever said, (laughs) Rama desperately tries to find his missing wife. Hanuman, one of the monkey warriors and the best sidekick a hero could ask for, tracks Sita to Lanka by following the trail of jewels she has left for him to follow. Rather than simply taking Sita back with him, however, Hanuman goes back to get Rama, who returns and promptly defeats Ravana. And Sita is very pleased to be saved, and it all works out well, except Rama is a bit reserved. He demands to know with certainty that Sita's honor is still intact, and makes it a literal trial by fire for her to prove her innocence. She walks through fire and comes out unharmed, thus proving her fidelity, at least for a little while. Rama returns home and becomes king, and it'd be swell if that was where the story ended, happily ever after and all that, but it's not. See, after a while, a very brief while actually, Rama starts hearing the townsfolk mocking him for taking back a wife who so clearly had been defiled by Ravana. So Rama, bowing to peer pressure, tosses out his faithful wife who is, by the way, pregnant with his twin sons at this point. Pregnant, banished, and brokenhearted, Sita is taken in by the poet Velmiki. Valmiki is, by the way, the author of the Ramayana, and inserts himself into the story in a Vonnegut-esque move here. Sita gives birth to Rama's sons, Lava and Kusa, and they grow up. Uh, As they grow up, Valmiki teaches them the story of Rama and how great he is. Personally, Rama at this point reminds me a lot of the people on Mori claiming not to be the baby daddy, but Sita still loves him and respects him, and Valmiki teaches her sons to do the same. Rama overhears the two young men singing his praises as he's out hunting one day. When he stops to talk to them, Valmiki introduces the father to his sons and reunites Rama and Sita. Ever the douche, Rama says to Sita, Yeah, but how can I know you're really pure now? Some men just never learn.
3: It's not as bad as what Mel Gibson said. (laughs) (laughs) Very little is.
2: I think we should make a tape of 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 him hyperventilating. (laughs) (laughs) You
4: are... (laughs) (laughs) You slut.
1: Uh, Sita says, If I'm still pure, still a good and loyal wife, may the earth take me back into the womb from which I was born. And of course, since she is... It does, and Rama loses his wife, the wife he, quite frankly, never really deserved, if you ask me, once and for all. Rama then goes back home to rule for a while, until someone astutely reminds him that, in fact, the reason he came to earth in the first place, to defeat Ravana, has long since been accomplished. Oh, yeah, says Rama, and packs up his stuff and ascends to heaven to go back to being Vishnu again. So there you have it, the story of Rama, deadbeat dad, even worse husband, friend to monkey warriors, scourge of demons, and just one more complex manifestation of a god worth not believing in.
2: And the story has deep Ramifications.
1: Um, So that's going to do it for (laughs) us this week. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, you can send us your comments, questions, challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Head over to our new website. You can go doubtcast.org, which will redirect you to freethoughtblogs.com slash Reasonable Doubts. Which has been very busy with comments. It has been. It's good. I think Freethought
3: Blogs is working. And more more iTunes reviews, please. Yes. To the podcaster, iTunes reviews is like crack. Exactly. (laughs) We need more.
1: Actually, it's like math. I've been watching a lot
3: of Breaking Bad
1: lately, so. I oh,
2: too. me too. Yeah, it's so good. I love it.
1: Very good. Um, I am the
2: one who knocks at the door.
1: So yes, write us review and all of that good stuff, and we will be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts,
2: your skeptical
1: guide to religion.